Please turn with me to Acts uh, chapter 19. If you have uh, a copy of the Scriptures, if you don't have, we would love to give you one. You can uh, get a new Bible, a new copy uh, at the welcome desk uh, when you leave today. Uh, we're in Acts chapter 19. This is our 19th week in this series. We've been taking it about a chapter per week as we work our way through this great uh, book of the Bible, uh, the book of Acts. Over the last 72 hours, uh, as some of you have been following, uh, two of my kids and I made the cross-country drive from here to Southern California. So we left uh, very early on Thursday morning, and we arrived uh, late in the evening uh, in Southern California on Friday. And then I flew back uh, yesterday afternoon and got, got home last night. But uh, We made the trip so that my, my son, Luke, could have his car at college as he started his uh, junior year. And he was willing to go by himself. Uh, but I said, you know, I didn't really, didn't really want my 21-year-old son driving 30 hours by himself. So I said, hey, I'd love to go with you. And, and then when my 19-year-old daughter heard that, she said, well, if you're going, Dad, I want to go too. And so we, we kind of made this trip together. It didn't start that great, to be honest with you. Um, two days before we were set to leave, my son said, oh, Dad, I'm, uh, I forgot to tell you, two of my tires are totally bald. Uh, they look like uh, NASCAR tires, and so I said, well, let's get that taken care of. So we went in and got that taken care of, and then the next day, which was one day before we were set to leave, he said, oh, Dad, I forgot to mention, um, my check engine light's been on for two months. I said, well, I don't really want to drive 2,000 miles partly across the desert with a check engine light on. He said, oh, don't worry, it's no big deal. And I said, on what basis have you concluded that it's not a big deal? I started to sound like an engineer. I said, what's the data behind this particular uh, conclusion? And he said, oh, don't worry, Dad, it's cool. I said, all right, it's cool, then cool, then we'll, uh, I'm going to take your word for it. So uh, we, we left, and aside from, now the, the light never went off, by the way, uh, it stayed on the whole time, but aside from um, going through a lightning storm in Oklahoma, um, running low on gas somewhere in Arizona, and then getting lost on a dirt road in a desert in New Mexico because my 21-year-old son said he knew a shortcut. Um, aside from all of that, it was, you know, it went pretty well overall aside from those things. Um, it was not, I wouldn't, wouldn't call it the greatest adventure ever, um, but it did have this in common with some of the epic sagas of all time, and that is it was a tenuous journey to a faraway destination. If you've ever, um, you know, you've been involved in literature, you read, you know that there are two themes that are common in some of the greatest stories, the greatest sagas of all time. One of those is uh, you often find a group of travelers trying to make their way to a, a distant destination. And the other, the other theme that's very prevalent is in these great epic sagas is they typically involve a, a battle between good and evil, um, whether it's Star Wars or the Chronicles of Narnia or Lord of the Rings, there is this epic battle between good and evil, and you don't really know as you're in the middle of it how all this will turn out. There's an unsettling tension as the battle between good and evil unfolds, and, a, and an uncertain ending lies in the balance. And this is what keep us, keeps us locked in, like, how is this all going to work out? What will prevail? Will it be good or will it be evil? Uh, well, many feel like this is the story of humanity, frankly. It is a, a battle between good and evil with the final victory 
uh, yet to be decided. But this is not the case, as we know. Um, sure, we do battle against the powers of this world and the powers of evil, um, but as we're going to see this morning, we do so only to the extent that the sovereign God allows and has ordained. Uh, we're involved in this battle, but the outcome has already been determined. And so as we get into this passage this morning, we're going to see, I think in a very fascinating way, that God has always had a very clear game plan for how He would advance His kingdom, how, will, how He will prevail over evil, and that game plan will succeed because God is backing it with infinite power, the power over death, the power over hell, the power over sin, the power over evil. So uh, we're going to cover Acts 19. Before we do, let me give you just a little bit of historical background because it is, I think, frankly, necessary for understanding this text. Let me tell you a little bit about the city of Ephesus where Acts 19 takes place. I mentioned to you last week that Ephesus was one of two of kind of the most significant influential cities that the Apostle Paul visited uh, the other one being Corinth, and certainly Athens was a really big deal as well. Um, but these two cities were, uh, were very influential. And Ephesus, even though it was the fourth largest city in the known world at that time, which of course is, makes for a huge city, it was probably the number one city in terms of spiritual influence. It was a great spiritual hub. There were a lot of spiritual people in Ephesus. I'm not talking about followers of Jesus but people who were worshipers of the gods and people who really, really wanted spiritual power. And so there was a, there was a huge need and infatuation with spiritual power. So you had magicians and sorcerers and exorcists and all kinds of people, people who, had, who were creating spells that they could cast on other people as a way to gain some power. And so it was a city, it was a great spiritual hub in the known world. There were a lot of idols in the city, a lot of so-called gods. Um, idolatry was actually not just the, uh, the way that people worship, but it was also the biggest item of commerce, the, the trade of clay and stone and wood idols. All, all kinds of idols were being bought uh, and sold. We're going to see this in just a moment. But the most cherished of all the idols were the ones that were formed in, fashioned in, the likes of the greatest small g god of that city, that was the god of Artemis, also known as Diana. Here's a picture of the temple of Artemis, absolutely stunning. Maybe you've heard of the, uh, the Parthenon in Athens. This temple was four times the size of the great Greek Parthenon. The walls were sculpted by Praxiteles, who was kind of the Michelangelo before Michelangelo, just this great artist. Um, it was such a remarkable orifice that it was known as one of the seven wonders of the world. And the devotion to the goddess Artemis or Diana was unparalleled in ancient history. And so with that as the background, let's get into the text together. Uh, let me read verses 1 through 10 for starters. Here reads the word of the Lord. And it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. There he found some disciples, and he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, No, we've not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, Into what then were you baptized? They said, Into John's baptism. 
And Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling people to believe in the one who was to come after him, that is Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. There were about 12 men in all. And he, that is Paul, entered the synagogue and for, and for three months spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way, that's a euphemism for those who follow Christ, the way, before the congregation, he withdrew from them and took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. This continued for two years so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord both Jews and Greeks. So a very uh, sort of notable stay in this very influential city. I mentioned to you last week that the Apostle Paul went on at least three missionary journeys, and those are recorded, we have those recorded in the Scriptures. Well, Acts 19 marks the beginning of the third missionary journey. If you were here last week, you remember from Acts 18 how Paul was in uh, Ephesus for a little while along with two of his uh, co-workers there, Aquila and Priscilla, and when he left Ephesus, he said, hey, if the Lord wills, I'll be back. Well, in Acts 19, Paul's back in Ephesus. And when he gets there, he runs into some disciples of John the Baptist. And he asks them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believe? And they say, no, what are you talking We've never even heard of the Holy Spirit, which is kind of an odd thing because their mentor, their, their teacher, John the Baptist, actually proclaimed the coming of the Holy Spirit. But they said, no, we We've never even heard of such a thing. And so Paul says, well, well who, baptized, who were you baptized into? They say, we were baptized into John the Baptist. To which Paul says, well, you need to be baptized into the Lord Jesus, which they were. And then immediately after, they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. You ever read one of those passages in the Scripture, and you're just like, this, is, this makes no sense to me at all. And sometimes, you know, you decide you're going to research it further. But, but most, of the time, most of the time, we just say, well... I don't get that. I'm just going to move on. And this is kind of one of those. It's a, it's a very challenging section um, because um, we know, and I'm going to talk about this in just a moment, that every believer is, a, is indwelled by the Holy Spirit. And here you have a group of disciples who say they don't even know anything about the Holy Spirit. So what does this mean? Well, one thing we can say for sure is what it doesn't mean. It certainly doesn't mean that baptism is necessary for salvation or in order to receive the Holy Spirit. So the overall witness of the, of the Scriptures is that, that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, not by works, so that, not even by baptism, which of course some uh, religions will promote. Likewise, the Scriptures also teach that when a person trusts in Jesus, turns from his or her sin, puts his faith in Christ, that person is then immediately and permanently indwelled by the Holy Spirit. Ever since the Holy Spirit came to the Gentiles in Acts 10 and 11, which is sometimes called the Gentile Pentecost, um, the loop was closed, so to speak. And now the New Testament clearly teaches that every Christian receives the Holy Spirit at conversion. We call it regeneration, when that person is born again from above, made alive in Christ. The Apostle Paul himself says to the people in the same city later on, in Ephesians 1, he says, In him you were also sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and when you believed. 
When you believe, you receive the Holy Spirit, you're sealed with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the down payment, he says, of our inheritance until the redemption of the possession to the praise of his glory. So when a person turns from sin, believes on Jesus, they're sealed and indwelled with the Holy Spirit. Later on in Romans Paul, uh, Romans 8, Paul would write this, You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God lives in you. If anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. So if you have believed, then you belong to God and you have the Holy Spirit. If you have not believed, you do not belong to God and you do not have the Holy Spirit. In other words, having the Holy Spirit is what identifies, what sets apart a true follower of Christ. You can't be a Christian if you don't have the Holy Spirit. There are no Christians who do not have the Holy Spirit. So what does that say about this passage this morning in, in Acts 19? How could these, been, these folks been followers of Jesus, disciples or believers, and not have had the Holy Spirit? Well, there are two um, things one of two things was happening here. So either these were brand new believers who actually had the Spirit, but were not aware of the Spirit's presence in their lives, and so they weren't living in the power of the Spirit. And when they were baptized into Christ, Paul laid hands on them. The power of the Holy Spirit overwhelmed them, and their reliance upon the Spirit caused them to do all these incredible, miraculous things like speaking in tongues or prophesying. So either one, one situation could be, these are believers, they have the Spirit, but they don't realize that they're not living in the power of the Spirit. Or, these were believers in John the Baptist, but not yet believers in Jesus, the one to whom John the Baptist continued to point. So there, just so you know, there are a lot of very smart people, uh, much smarter people than I, who are on both sides of this, and, and I don't claim to have the, uh, the authoritative word on this, but here's where I come down. And I'll explain to you why this matters, I think. I'm persuaded that these, these were genuine believers in Jesus, regenerate disciples, who are totally uninformed about the filling and the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, I say that because Luke, who wrote the book of Acts, calls them disciples in verse 1. And then Paul asks them in verse 2, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? So Paul assumes, Paul believes that they are actually believers. New Testament scholar uh, Daryl Bach explains it this way, these disciples need finishing in their understanding but have embraced Jesus or else belief likely would not be mentioned. So there are these are believers in Jesus, but again, unaware of the coming of the Holy Spirit. And what Paul explains to them about the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit manifests Himself in such power that they began to do incredible things in the Spirit's power. So here, here's why this matters, and this is our first point this morning. Every believer in Jesus is indwelled by the Holy Spirit and thus empowered by God to be an obedient witness to Christ. Our task is to rely on the Spirit. Now, I say obedient witness. That's a phrase I use very intentionally because the Holy Spirit is the one who continues to conform us into greater obedience to Christ's commands, and the Holy Spirit is the one who enables us, empowers us to tell other people about Jesus, and even supernaturally provides the words to us. There was something so important, something so important about the Holy Spirit 
that Jesus told his disciples at one point in John's gospel is actually going to be better for you that I leave. Of course, you know, they're with their teacher and their friend and their beloved mentor and their savior. And so this didn't go so well, but he said, it's better for you if I leave, because if I leave, that means the coming of the Holy Spirit. So what Jesus says is, what he basically is saying is, the Holy Spirit in you is going to be better than my presence beside you. The Holy Spirit will come and dwell in you. The Holy Spirit is the one who empowers believers, who comforts believers. That's why he's called the comforter. He comes alongside believers and strengthens our faith and pours out the love of the Father in our hearts. We may not speak in tongues and prophesy. Those were actions that affirmed the validity of the gospel message in an unevangelized time and and place, but we experience the Spirit's power, and we need the Spirit's power in our life at every moment. We need the Holy Spirit in order to remain faithful in our marriages. And I had a conversation with a friend in California yesterday. He was asking about what are the challenges in ministry? And I said, here's an interesting thing that I've observed. It's very troubling, but the first 15 years of my ministry, I didn't see this, but the last five, what I've seen is people getting divorced after 30, 35, 40 years of marriage. Like I had not seen that before in, in my ministry. We need the Holy Spirit to persevere and to be faithful in our marriages. We need the Holy Spirit in order to parent our children well. We need the Holy Spirit for the courage and strength to tell our neighbors about Jesus. We need the Holy Spirit to empower us to overcome the temptation to sin. We need the Holy Spirit to help us confess our own sin. We need the Holy Spirit to remind us of the love of the Father. And the question is, are you relying on the Holy Spirit in your life? Are you so aware of your own spiritual weakness and your own spiritual inadequacies that it drives you to your knees in dependence upon God, pleading with Him to pour out the power of the Spirit in your life? Are you so aware by your own, of your own sin tendencies and your own brokenness that you know your only hope for obedience is the power of the Spirit? We don't have time to look at them now, but this was the Apostle Paul's prayer that the power of the Spirit would be evident and at work in his own life and ministry. Let's continue. Look at verses 11 and 12. And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul, so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick, and their diseases left them, and the evil spirits came out of them. This is incredible stuff. We say, what in the world? This is weird. Like, why would, would handkerchiefs and aprons be... So be, be uh, filled with the power of God to heal the sick. Well, remember what I mentioned to you a few minutes ago. This is a city infatuated with power, absolutely infatuated with power. And what God says here in the midst of all these power seekers is He's showing the world real power, life-transforming, healing power is mine alone, and I'll pour it out any way I want. Now look at verses 13 through 16. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Asceva were doing this. But the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, 
And Paul I recognized, but who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them, mastered all of them, and overpowered them so that they fled out of the house naked and wounded. I love this. This is the, the ultimate exposure of posers, the sons of Sceva who pretend to represent Jesus. They don't even know Jesus. And so this evil spirit that they try to cast out actually comes upon them and uh, torments them in a humiliating way. When I was re- working as a sports reporter with CNN before pastoral ministry, the, the primary teams that I covered were Cincinnati Bengals, Cincinnati Reds, Ohio State Buckeyes, and the Dayton Bombers, which was a hockey team. I had other teams, but those were my primary teams. And when I covered the Bengals, uh, the games, I would do so from the field. So I had a press pass on, a big thing I wore around my neck, and uh, I would go with a notebook, and I had a, a cameraman with me or a camera person with me, and so I've got my notebook, and I'm writing down particular plays that are noteworthy and uh, people that I'm going to interview after the game and what I'm going to come back to, and then I would send that at the end, put it together in what's called a package, and I would send it back to the, the station, and they would broadcast that. Well, one day... In uh, November 1997, I was, the Bengals were hosting the San Diego Chargers, and I was at the game, and I was on the field, and I had my notepad, I'm taking notes, and I'm seeing who I'm going to interview, and, um, and my phone kept blowing up. I kept getting calls on my phone, and uh, so during a timeout, I walked away, and I looked, and it was a, it was a high school friend of mine, and I let, so I, I grew up in Dayton, Ohio, which is only 60 miles from Cincinnati, so I had a lot of friends in that area, and so it was a high school friend of mine who who was trying to get a hold of me, and he left like, you know, like six times. I saw a missed call, and so I finally, um, again, I had a break, and I called him, and I said, hey, what's going on? He said, I'm at the game. Like, I'm at the game. I can see you. And he said, can you get me on the field? And I said, yeah, I don't really feel comfortable doing that. I mean, I, I could get in trouble, and, and you could get kicked out. And he said, come on, man. He said, come on, get me on the field. And he just kept going. And you know how high school friends are, man. They're, they don't care. They just keep persisting. And so, so finally, like the, uh, the unjudged, unjust judge in loose gospel, I was so worn down and beaten down. I said, all right, let's, let me see if I can do this. So I met him um, at, the, uh, at, a, at a gate and slipped off my press pass, my credentials. I gave them to him. And he said, man, we look just alike anyway. Nobody's going to notice, which is not really true. Um, but gave it to him. And I started to walk up to his seat. He made about 15 steps, and uh, security stopped him. Uh, they, they, you know, interrogated him, what, what, who he was, what he was doing, and um, you know, it was, it was a dumb thing that I did, and, and uh, I knew right away that uh, I, I could have gotten in trouble, and he could have gotten in, in, in you know, thrown out. But uh, anyway, he, he, the guy just turned him around, really uh, sort of chastised him in an angry way, the security officer, and then he had to walk the humiliating journey back to his section in front of 53,000 screaming uh, fans where he slouched down in his seat for the rest of the game. He was an imposter, and he was found out right away. The situation in Acts 19 is kind of like that. It was a true walk of shame. Only my friends didn't have to walk. My friend didn't have to walk out naked, which would have been really, really embarrassing, but uh, like these men did, they were overpowered by the evil spirits for preparing pretending to be something they weren't. Now look at what happens in verse, verses 17 following. And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. And many of those who were now, believe, who were now 
believers came, confessing and divulging their practices. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts and uh, brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. So these imposters are exposed, and of course they, they, they go out naked and they're, they're tormented by the Holy Spirit that they try to cast out. And people who are around, I mean, they, they see this and they're just blown away by this. They're amazed by this. They're, they're, they're amazed by the power of God at work in this area. And so what happens is when, when the magicians and sorcerers and potion makers see this, they take note of it and they're terrified. But it wasn't just a fear that they might be the next ones to be overwhelmed by an evil spirit. Verse 17 says that fear, the fear of God fell upon them, and the name of Jesus was extolled, which just means worshipped, exalted, or treasured. So they start burning their magic books, confessing and repenting of their demonic practices. These are drastic responses. Books, you couldn't just order a book on Amazon or go down to the local Barnes & Noble. Books were treasured. Books were valuable. And here, these former sorcerers and magicians are so overwhelmed with guilt and the realization they've been worshiping the wrong God that they destroy their prized possessions. New Testament scholar R.C. Sproul writes, The people were so stricken in their conscience by the truth of the power of the Holy Spirit that they saw immediately the difference between real and counterfeit. And they went and got the books for which they had spent so much money and burned them. What are they feeling? Remorse, brokenness, contrition, a desire to be made right with the one true living God of all power. And this leads us to our second point. Here it is. One of the most striking evidences of the Spirit's work in a person's life is the conviction of and repentance over sin. You've heard me say it before. You want to know how if a person is growing or mature in their faith, you want to know how if you're growing and you're mature in your faith, what do we tend to do? We tend to look at activity, the person who's around the most, at the church the most, or doing the most, serving the most, or we look at knowledge, the person who knows the most, the person who can spout off the most doctrine. And look, those aren't bad things. Those are good things. Being involved in the community, that's good. Serving, absolutely good. Knowing theology and doctrine, these are good things. That's why I'm going to teach a class in a few weeks on the doctrine of God, knowing theology, these, these are all good, but these are not necessarily the markers of spiritual growth and maturity. What's the mark? Repentance, brokenness, a belief, a trust in the gospel. So you want to look to see how you're growing? Don't ask the question necessarily, how much scripture have I committed to memory, although that's a good thing. Ask this question, when's the last time I said, I'm sorry, I was wrong, please forgive me. When's the last time I sought the forgiveness of a brother or sister in Christ? When's the last time I went before the Lord with a brokenness and a contrition, overwhelmed by the, the guilt of my own sin and trusting in God's forgiveness? Going to church, that's good, but that's easy by comparison. It takes no power, but conviction over sin and the repentance thereof takes a profound work of the Holy Spirit it is one of his most telling works. If you've studied American history, you've probably heard of the Great Awakening, uh, the uh, 
early 18th century, mostly in the New England area. My, my daughter, who's a sophomore in high school, was asking me the other day. We had dinner together, just the two of us, and out of the blue, she's asking me about the Great Awakening, you know, and she's studying it in, in, her, uh, in her U.S. history class. And so you, you probably heard of the Great Awakening, but, but less well-known uh, is the so-called Manchurian Revival that took place in northeast China in 1908. There were a group of Canadian missionaries who took up residence in Manchuria, which is a region, again, uh, it's not just China, but a region uh, of northeast China dominated by Buddhism and Taoism and animism and so on. And for a long time, so these missionaries went to this area, totally unevangelized area, totally, totally unreached area, and for the longest time they didn't see any fruit at all. And of course they're tired and they're frustrated and they're questioning God, what's going on here? Why do you have us here in this area? But then all of a sudden, out of the blue it seemed, during a week of, of half-day-long meetings led by Jonathan Goforth, who was a Canadian Presbyterian who'd come to, to the Manchurian area, all of a sudden these shocking things started to happen. All of a sudden the, the, the normally very self-reliant and self-righteous uh, Manchurians who, who were, were always about keeping up on the right sort of appearances... They started, they started confessing their sins to one another and to God. And they, they, they took on this spirit of extreme brokenness and, and contrition. One missionary there describes the events this way, as recorded by Eves Conger. A power has come into the church that we cannot control if we would. It is a miracle that a man goes out of his way to confess to sins that no torture of the yamen, the government officials there, could force from him. For such a man to demean himself to crave weeping, the prayers of his fellow believers is beyond all human explanation. Now perhaps you will say it's a sort of religious hysteria. So did some of us. But here we are, about 60 Scottish and Irish Presbyterians who have seen it, all shades of temperament, and, as, and much as many of us shrank from it at first, Everyone who has seen and heard what we have every day last week is certain that there's only one exception. There's only one explanation, that it is God's Holy Spirit manifesting Himself. One clause of the creed that lives before us now in all its inevitable, awful solemnity is, I believe, in the Holy Ghost. Listen, if Presbyterians can be moved, anybody can be moved. Uh, they're saying, these are a Scottish and Irish Presbyterians, and I love Presbyterians, but they're saying, we, we were so doubtful of this, we thought there's no way this is happening. This has got to be some sort of hysteria. But they, they, then they say, all of these very self-righteous and independent and self-reliant people are now coming, and they're broken, and they're weeping, and they're confessing their sin to one another. They said, we have no other explanation but this. This is a work of the Holy Spirit. A posture of brokenness and confession is a work of the Holy Spirit. This is what we, we see the Spirit at work in bringing people to confession, in a willingness to confess sin to one another. And this, by, by the way, this posture of brokenness, this eagerness to confess sins to one another, is actually a disposition that every true believer can have because of the beauty of the gospel which the Holy Spirit reminds us of and enables us to believe. The gospel tells us that our forgiveness is complete in Jesus. 
that because Jesus died for our sins, a payment that was totally sufficient to cover our debt, it means that we can now trust in Jesus and His righteousness, which is ours by faith, which also means that because we're pardoned from our sins and our offenses through the work of Christ, and we can't lose that standing, it means that now we're free to confess our sins to one another. Because we know it's not my image, it's not my, uh, my, my image of perfection that's going to get me anywhere. It's not my own righteous record. It's the perfection of Jesus, the one who lived for me and the one who died for me. And that creates a culture in the church where the members of the church, even the leaders of the church, so deeply rest in Christ and His righteousness that we're free to be open with each other about our failures. We're free to let people know we don't have it all together. We're free to let people know, yeah, I sin, and I've sinned in this way. I've sinned against you in this way, and I need to seek your forgiveness. It creates a culture where we don't have to pretend that everything is amazing all the time. We can be open, and we can be honest because we know that our standing before God is secure because of Christ, not because of anything we say or do or anything we've done. So together, because of the gospel, we're able to revel in God's forgiveness, which then glorifies God. And because of that openness, because of that vulnerability, it actually attracts people to God's message of the gospel. And it leaves people, it attracts those who are hurting and feeling guilty. This is what happened in Acts 19, verse 20. And the word of the Lord continued to increase mightily. So let me just summarize what happens here. Well, in the last section, a riot breaks out in Ephesus, verse 23. About that time, there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. And for you English majors, that, that no little is, a, is a, a device called a litotes, which is a way of saying actually it's a really big deal. So saying actually it was a really huge riot. And what sparked that riot was there were there were those uh, who were making the idols to Artemis. So this was their job. This is how they fed their family. This is how they uh, maintained the lifestyle they did. They, they made these idols to Artemis. And as God was being, bringing people to saving faith, people stopped buying those idols. And so their sales were plummeting. And they were saying, we got to do something about this. And so they started to stir up the people and they got a crowd going and they the crowd starts chanting over and over for two straight hours. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And these people chanted for two hours, filling the whole theater. Have you ever been to a sporting event where the crowd starts chanting something rude to the officials and, then, and everybody kind of gets involved? Luke had a, a basketball tournament when he was a sophomore in Southern California. And somehow the opposing fans had heard that one of the starters on Luke's team had just uh, been dumped by his girlfriend. And I don't know how they, I don't know how maybe social media or something, they found out that he had been dumped by his girlfriend. So every time he would touch the ball, everybody on that side of the stands would say, where is Maddie? Where is Maddie? That was his girlfriend, ex-girlfriend's name. And so they're just chanting, just tormenting this kid every time he touched the ball about his ex, about Maddie who dumped him. But it just went on and on and on. And, and here in, in Ephesus, you have this crowd that's getting worked up into this, into this frenzy. And they keep chanting about, great is Artemis. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And so Paul says to his friends, he said, look, I'm going to go out there. And I'm just going to try to settle things down. 
And they say, are you crazy? You can't go out there. They will kill you. You can't go out there. And so the crowd continues, and then they, um, they create all this confusion, and they seize this guy named Alexander, and they put him in front of the whole crowd. And Alexander, somehow, by motioning his hand, he gets this mass of people to be quiet. And Alexander urges the crowd, and Demetrius, who's the guy who started the whole thing, to lodge their complaint through the correct legal channels. Otherwise, they themselves will be guilty of a crime. And so, incredibly, the crowd listens. The assembly is dismissed, and Paul and his crew resume doing what God had called them to do. They go preaching the gospel again. But I think we have to say here, this is not the way that it works typically. There are Christians right now suffering and being killed because of their faith and allegiance to Christ. So typically part of, and of course we know this from Paul's own story here, part of the, part of the experience is suffering, tremendous suffering. In Afghanistan right now this morning, Christians are being uh, tormented, beheaded, <clears throat> separated from their families, wrongly accused of terrible crimes. The persecution of Christians right now, this is hard to believe, but it's true. The persecution of Christians right now is at an all-time historic high in the world. There's never been any time in history when more governments are against Christianity than there are now. When more people are suffering, being ostracized, persecuted because of their faith than now. Shockingly, Paul and his companions are released this time. But Paul and his fellow gospel ministers are willing to suffer. They expect to suffer They do suffer, and when they do, they rejoice in it. And here's why. Here's our final point. Suffering for the Christian is never pointless. It advances Christ's kingdom and secures a particular glory for the believer. So whatever you're going through this morning, you can know for sure there's not one moment of suffering that you undergo that is not being observed by your heavenly Father, the sovereign one who has ordained all things for your good and his glory. And there's not one moment of suffering that you're going through that is not securing for you a particular and peculiar glory in the life to come. Whether it's rejection by a friend, ridicule at school, being passed over for a promotion at work, being mocked by your own family, the chronic pain that you're enduring, the anguish of losing someone you love, the frustration of hope destroyed, none of it is ignored by God. None of it is missed by God, and none of it is pointless. To the contrary, God is using it to strengthen your faith, to increase your joy and your satisfaction in Him, to keep you to Himself even amid your suffering, And He is preparing for you right now a place that is beyond your wildest dreams. I mentioned as I started this morning that God has a game plan. Well, God's game plan, as we've seen through this passage, is to push back the powers of darkness by reconciling people to Himself and one another and in empowering those same people by His Holy Spirit to live holy and peace-filled lives even amid suffering thus attracting more people to himself, thus growing and expanding his kingdom. And from a missional standpoint, think about the sort of witness this is. A community of faith that lives at peace with one another, 
seeking God's glory, confessing their sins to one another, repenting and seeking the forgiveness of one another, obeying God's word above all, seeking the spiritual and relational good of their city, even in the middle of a crazy, topsy-turvy, uneven world. Think of the sort of witness this is. Think of what might happen if the church actually lives and exists in this way. It might cause yet another revival. Let's pray. Father in heaven, you are the awesome king. And we know that as we go along this journey, there will be suffering and there will be sorrow. But even along this path of sorrow, we know that you are with us. You have given us your spirit and you have given us one another. Father, help us to encourage one another and to be encouraged this morning from these words from you. Apply them to our hearts, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.